0: Hey, I'm Chris. Like you said, I this is my fifth year at Mercy House. I graduated from Amherst last year, and I work on InterVarsity staff at Amherst. So many of my friends are here, students at Amherst. Um, thanks for coming. Okay, so we heard, we heard the passage read, um, and I don't have a really like catchy hook for you. Um, so we're going to dive into it. But... I will say, I think, I think this passage is particularly compelling because we see the heart of God in a way um, that even Scripture doesn't always illuminate. Right? I think it's a, a, a brilliantly illustrative passage. Uh, we get to see Jesus acting in really vulnerable, emotional ways um, that's sort of unprecedented in Scripture. It kind of stands alone as a place where we get to see God's heart um, as it concerns sin and God's love for us. And so I'm really excited to preach. I'm, Uh, Thankful for the opportunity. Before I dive in, permit me me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scripture. Isaiah says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so as we let this text instruct us, we'd be wise to pay attention. Um, And as people who are fickle and changing, we can let our lives rub up against the word of God so that we'd be changed And that's my hope today. Um, So as we start, let me pray for us. God, I recognize that I need you. um, And I, I need you to speak. Lord, and we need you to speak. God, we need you to commune with us today. So I pray that you would send your spirit, Father, in the name of Jesus, to teach us and instruct us and show us your Son. Lord, magnify your Son in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's do it. So, verse 13. If you have a Bible, whip it out. Um, if not, there's one in your chair. Verse 13 says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Um, and so I want to just unpack that phrase. because There's a lot in there. And actually, before I do, let me just give you the outline of, of what I'm going to say. so You can try to take notes or keep mental track of where we are. The, it's going to go like this. The scene, the sin the Savior, the sign. And they're all S's, so you know that it's very holy. Uh, it's alliterative, so it's probably a good sermon. Um, so we're going to start with the scene. Let me just illuminate what it, what it means that Jesus is at the Passover of the Jews in Jerusalem. Jerusalem at the time of Jesus had a population of like 600,000 people, so relatively big city. It's the center of Jewish worship. Um, it's the place where the temple is. Um, but during the week of Passover... People would come from all over Israel and all over the Jewish diaspora, spread out all over the world, and come to Jerusalem in order to um, participate in the Feast of the Passover. So that meant that the population of Israel, or Jerusalem, would flood to three to four million people during this time, in a city meant for 600,000. So it's a packed spot, right? It's like hopping, and, um, and Jesus is on the scene, because Jesus is Jewish. And so Jesus is participating in the rite of Passover, just like all the other Jews. And what it meant to participate in the rite of Passover would mean that once a year, there's a week-long feast commemorating what God had done to liberate his people from Egypt when they were in captivity. Um, And that's an exodus. You can go read it. Um, But the point of the feast was, yeah, to remember God saving his people from Egypt and making them a people, Israel. Um, And so what it meant to participate, what you did when you were participating, is you would come from wherever you were to the temple and every household would offer as a sacrifice a lamb and then also people used this time to pay a tax to the temple that had to be paid in the form of a silver shekel and then in addition to that people would use the time to offer other sacrifices for sin so in the book of leviticus it's really complicated you can still read it it's accessible but it's, it's, God lays out very definitively what kind of sacrifices need to be offered for what kinds of sin, and when, and how, um, and like, yeah, what kind of animal. And so the people are doing that too. So just in your head as you imagine the scene, imagine a city built for 600,000 people, full of three to four million people, all of them coming far and wide, carrying their, their like clothing and their food, their whole families marching together up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in order to kill a lot of animals. A lot of animals. A lot of animals are going to die. So, just for context, like every household is killing at least one lamb. But in addition to that, you could kill an oxen. You could kill a lot of birds. Um, and so, uh, just to, to like theologically describe and to paint the picture of the scene, the temple was the place where the intersection of God and men happened. This is where people come to meet God. Um, and there's two things that should strike you as we, as we dive in about the temple. One is that it's incredibly bloody. Like I just said, a lot of animals are going to die. Some scholars speculate that because of all the sacrifices, there would literally be a river of blood pouring out of the temple and down the mountain in Jerusalem. The, the priests might be like up to their ankles in blood because like hundreds, thousands of animals are being slaughtered and, and blood. I'm seeing a stank face over there. Yes, it's gross. And it would smell super bad. You can imagine that this is not the only time they're offering sacrifices. The temple's constantly a place of killing animals, and so the stench would kind of have set in. Um, you can imagine the smell, yeah. Uh, basically, it's violent, it's gruesome, it's really bloody. The second point that, you should, that should grab you about the temple is that it's full, the temple itself was full, very orderly. Not clean, but like very full of uh, regulations and barriers. And so what I mean by that is that these people, right, they come from all over the place to offer a sacrifice. And as you approach the huge temple, you would notice, you would know based on signs in the temple or just like your upbringing, you get trained to know this, that you enter the temple court and the first court is called the, the court of the Gentiles. Anyone can go there, man, woman, female, Jew, Gentile, that's the court of the Gentiles. But if you weren't Jewish, you'd get stopped on your way into the next room, which is called the court of women. So then if you're a woman, you can go past the court of Gentiles into the court of women, but then you would get stopped on your way into the court of men. So if you're Jewish and a man, then you'd go through the court of Gentiles, through the court of women, into the court of men, and then you'd get stopped as you tried to enter the holy place. Only priests can go there. And that means, that means so that's just Jewish men who have devoted their lives to the service of God in the temple and are from the genetic line of Levi. And so they've been set apart from birth and by service for their entire lives. So now they can enter the holy place. Then there's a big veil, super thick curtain, that enters into the holy of holies. And even the priest can't go in there. Only one guy, one time a year, the high priest, is allowed to go into the holy of holies. So of all these people, it sort of gets filtered and only the high priest can go in there once a year. And he has to be wearing the right clothing. He has to have done all the right sacrifices. He has to, like, have, has to have remained um, ceremonially clean. He has to, he's like, covered in blood as he goes in to atone for his own sins and the sins of his people. And then he's allowed to step into the place where the actual presence of God is in the Holy of Holies. Even then, and I think unfortunately the Jewish people probably learned this by experience, they, they didn't let him go in there until they had tied a rope around his ankle. And bells were hanging off of his coat so that if he stopped moving or dropped dead, they would drag him out. You can imagine having learned that by experience how disgusting that would be, right? The dude goes in there one time a year. What if he were to die and then no one's allowed to go back in for a whole year? Gross. So anyway... The two things about the temple is, one, that it's incredibly bloody, and the second is that it's incredibly orderly, and there's a lot of barriers and regulations about how people can relate to God. So that's the background of the scene. Oh, one other thing. We'll see in verse 14 that in the temple, Jesus finds those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Like I so the, just want to explain what those people are doing. Like I said, people would come from all over the place to offer sacrifice, and these people are providing a necessary service. They're selling animals for sacrifice, oxen and sheep and doves, uh, pigeons, because, so that way, people wouldn't have to take an oxen with them from their home and come all the way to the temple with an oxen or with a birdcage. That's annoying. And so these people are offering animals for sale in the court of the Gentiles, not the holy place, not the court of the Jews, in like the outermost edge of where the temple is. Also, the money changers, similarly, were providing a market They're providing a service because all these people came from all over the place, but they needed standardized coinage to be able to facilitate sale, to buy and trade animals, and to pay the temple tax in the silver shekel. Does that make sense? So what they're doing is facilitating service. They're doing ministry in the temple. That's the scene. And then Jesus walks in, right? In verse 14, Jesus walks into the temple in this flood of people. That's the scene. Now we're on the sin. So the obvious thing that, that stands out to us as we read this text, right, Jesus is furious. He's not playing around. He's not playing any games. He makes a whip of cords and drives them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and pours out the coins of the money changers and overturns their tables. And he yells to the pigeon people, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He says that he's consumed with zeal. He's furious. And so the obvious question as we encounter the sin here is why is Jesus so upset? Why is he acting like this? He's sort of like, this is not the normal Jesus that we, that we like, have a handle on, the kind, meek Jesus, who, or I guess like weak Jesus who's just uh, a loving friend to hold your hand. No, Jesus is flipping over tape, tables, right? And so the question obviously is, why is Jesus doing this? And if you've heard this preached before, you might've heard it, it's told in all four gospels, you might've heard it preached from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And in each of those texts, you have Jesus saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so, usually, the text is preached to expose the fact that Jesus is outright against robbery and the, the extortion that people were doing. They're stealing. So, he, he, they, it's normally preached con- saying that Jesus is condemning the practice of the money changers and those selling oxen and, and sheep because they would extort they would, they would like drive up prices because they had a monopoly. Does that make sense? And so if you've heard a passage preached before, you've usually heard it as a call for social justice, God's heart against injustice in the world. And those are absolutely true things. And if I were preaching this for Matthew, Mark, or Luke, I would probably make the same point because I think that's the emphasis from this text. John is doing something a little bit different. Um, and I actually think that what John is doing is, is far more challenging for us as people who are attending this church notice that the the robber's language is not in here, right? Jesus doesn't say, you made it a den of robbers. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And that that can be translated into like a house of commerce. It's basically a shopping mall. And it's not that Jesus is against capitalism. Jesus is not against making a profit. Um, And so what is it that that sets Jesus off? Here's my, my best attempt, and I think this is what John is emphasizing, is that, they're doing things in the temple that aren't for God's worship. It's not what the temple's for. And in some way, they've actually desecrated. They've desacralized the temple, right? Um, the temple was supposed to be a place set aside for God's worship, and they're doing something that's, that's uh, secular. It's not set aside for God's worship. And the fact is that Jesus is just flat out not having it. Do you see why I said that this is more challenging than the call to social justice. Jesus isn't just condemning theft and oppression or extortion. He isn't just speaking truth to power. Right? He's not just like calling out those in power who are oppressing others. Um, he's, he's not doing less than that. He's doing that too. I think he's actually doing more than that. He's overturning the tables of the ministers in the temple. Do you catch that? So the the cutting thing for us as people who came here and worshiped this morning is that their worship isn't safe. He's in the temple and he's furious. Does that make sense? This is people who are going to meet God in the the temple and Jesus is furious with the way that people are ministering in the temple. So to my fellow ministers of the gospel, we have to feel this. This This is real, that actually Jesus can make demands about the way that we do ministry and we could be doing service to God in a way that infuriates Jesus. Do you catch that? We have to ask ourselves, in what ways is the ministry we do really about our own needs or fulfilling some own heart desires, serving us? What principles of ministry do we have that mirror the structures of the world rather than God's plan? Even in our church, in what ways is our church Mirror the outside world rather than what God really has for this church. And if you're a Christian in the room and you think that I'm not talking to you, let me read 1 Corinthians 6 to you. It says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body has been set apart for the glorification of God. John Piper says it like this What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, that is sin. It's a much broader condemnation than that just says don't extort, don't steal. So let me ask you this. Even as we've been in church, what percentage of your thoughts have been about you? Even as you've come to worship the living God, can you escape the self-dialogue that's all about yourself? Maybe you thought, where should I sit? How does my hair look? Should I sit next to this person or that person? Should I raise my hand during worship? Will people look at me when I close my eyes? How is our worship even tied up with self-centeredness? They're not just, this is not just like silly things, right? It points to a much deeper reality. Even our worship is commingled with our selfishness. So actually, whether or not you're a Christian, you need to hear this. The Bible says that you were made in the image of God. That it is your purpose on earth to reflect the glory of God into the world. You were made with a purpose. You weren't made by accident. You don't just exist. And the the truth is, from the Bible, that you need to live into that purpose. you need to be set apart from that purpose and that anything less than a life fully and wholly captivated by the love and glory of God and reflecting his love and justice into the world is not just a waste of a life. It's not just foolish. It's actually a lie and it offends God. It does in some way attempt to rob God of the honor that he deserves. It offends him. And so, right now, you might be saying, like, yes, I get it, I'm sinful, but couldn't Jesus just lighten up a bit? No. He's jealous for his glory. God will not settle for a scrap of your life or for fragments of your heart, and he will not be mocked by religious games. God cleanses us of all the ways in our lives where we improperly mirror the world's values. And actually, it's, it's good. Praise God that he's willing to discipline and rebuke us, even when it's uncomfortable for us, such that we might be more holy. It would be good for us to recognize that there are tables in our hearts that Jesus wants to overturn. As uncomfortable as that might be. So as we look deeply at the sin and we, and we see what, what they did, first of all, we see that their sin is our sin that we're doing the same thing. And so the question is not what makes Jesus so mad about this. The better question is what hope is there for us as people who are doing the same things, knowing Jesus' reaction to sin, what hope is there for you and me that we could really come to God if even our worship isn't safe? Do you feel that? that? Does that make sense? All right, so that's the scene and the sin. Now we'll move into the Savior. Let me read what Jesus does. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. I'm gonna stop there, we'll move on in a second. But let me pause on what Jesus is doing. Let's look closely at Jesus. The first thing you obviously notice is his anger, right? He's furious, like I keep saying. Um, But let's let's make a couple theological points about Jesus' anger. The first is that it's controlled, right? Jesus is not just going off, he's not just blowing up. It's controlled. He took the time somehow to make a whip of cords. This is some like premeditation and focus and clarity of thought. It's not like he's just going off, right? It's controlled. The second thing is that it's righteous. We just saw these people are committing a sin against God. They're using something that's set apart for God in ways that are desecrating the temple. So it's controlled. It's righteous. It's measured. Jesus isn't beating people up. He's not murdering people. He's, he's like pushing them out. He's like whipping around, right? Um, But it's measured. It's also productive. Jesus is not not just like inflicting pain for the sake of punishment. He's pushing them out of the temple. And so his anger actually is instructive and gives us correction such that the temple ends up cleared out because of his anger. It's productive. Does that make sense? So that's, that's what his anger looks like. The, but the question still remains, why does he do this? We see what his anger looks like. We know that it's productive. We also know that, um, that he's angry against the sin that they're committing. We understand the sin. But why does, why does he do this? Why is this his course of action? Why, why does he do something that's actually so embarrassing, so alienating? Because it's not good for his ministry, right? There's a huge crowd of people. Jesus could like, work a miracle and everyone would turn and be like, whoa, that guy's cool. But instead, he, this is like solo rant. Right, And he's flipping tables. It's super unpopular. Definitely alienating, like I said. Um, And we know from every other gospel account, this story ends with the Jews in the temple determining, that's the last straw. We have to kill him. They use words like, and so they determined to kill him. And so they set out to put him to death. And so they were seeking to destroy him. This is the last straw in Jesus' ministry in every other gospel account. So the question remains, why would Jesus do this it seems self-destructive. He could have just let it go, right? I mean, he could have been angry and then just not done anything about it. And actually, all he really did was move the animals out of the temple a couple feet away, right? It wasn't like it was that big of a deal. Jesus, calm down. They weren't even in the most holy place. So yeah, like, let the temple of the, or the, the court of the Gentiles be desecrated. But like, cool it, Jesus, right? Look in verse 16. It tells us why. Sorry, verse Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's why Jesus does this. Let me eliminate that. First by saying that Jesus is not so overcome by anger that he has to lash out. It's not as though God has like bubbling wrath for sin such that he has to destroy it. Actually, the word zeal is like passion, fervor, gusto. And he's consumed by it. He so cares about his father's house that he, he's, consu- he's moved, he's compelled to do something. And we've already said, right, you are the temple. If you're in Christ, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. So did you see that this is Jesus' love that prompts this? It's a corrective towards holiness. He's, actually, he's consumed with passion and zeal for his father's house, for you and I. It's his love for God's people that makes him do this. And actually, I want, to, I want to highlight this point because people misconstrue what God's wrath means and what God's wrath looks like. People often ask us, how could you serve a God that will punish sinners? How could you serve a God that's wrathful? And I think often as Christians, we sort of stutter over an answer. But you can say this. God's wrath and love are inextricably intertwined. One point by way of illustration. Suppose I were a father. I'm not. But God is. And I had children, and in my home, my children are asleep at night. Suppose that I knew that someone was sneaking into my house and doing unspeakable things to my children. Would it then be loving for me to permit that? Of course not. Right? And actually, my love would drive me to seek justice. It's care for God's people that makes God seek justice. Does that make sense? And actually, the application of that is that a less wrathful God, a God that cared less about justice, would necessarily be less loving. It's because God is so zealous, so loving for his people, that he has to seek justice. He has to hold people accountable for their sin. His love and justice are necessarily connected, inextricably intertwined. So like I said, it's zeal for his house that consumed him. That, that's why Jesus is angry. It's out of his love. So let's look, let's look more closely at Jesus. Look how the love and justice of God collide in Jesus. Right? So just to go back to the scene, right? there's thousands of people in the court of the Gentiles. And there's this loud marketplace happening. Right? There's animals all around. The, the, the priests and there's blood pouring out of a temple. The priests are like doing their thing. In the, in the temple, offering sacrifice, killing animals. And there's this loud court, right? And Jesus makes a whip and starts clearing the place out. And we can, we can assume, based on the space and how many people there were, it took him a while. He's probably whipping for a while. He's probably yelling. He's flipping heavy wooden tables. So at this point, he's probably breathing hard. He's probably sweating. He's been shouting. Have you ever tried to exert yourself while shouting? It's exhausting. So he's, he's probably sweating, like I said. He's probably exhausted, And now, the people are cleared out. And all of a sudden, the space gets quiet. And the only people left in the room are his closest disciples. We know John was there, and we know that some Jews were there, probably some priests. And Jesus is standing there sort of like heaving, still holding his whip. And the Jews come up to him, and they say to him, What sign do you show for this? What authority do you have? Like, prove it. Who are you? And Jesus, with, I imagine, tears in his eyes, out of love and furious justice, still holding the whip, turns to them, and notice that in the, in, the, in the place of the climax of Jesus' anger and frustration during his earthly life, that his anger is self-directed. Look what he says, destroy this temple. It's as though he's saying, just kill me. In all of his frustration, he, he, he says, you really want another sign to the Jews? You really want another sign? You're going to have to just kill me. So this is, this is why I'm saying that the love and justice of God are so focused in Jesus Notice that, yeah, like I said, at the, at the height of Jesus' anger, anger that was prompted by someone else's sin, Jesus' anger is self-directed. He's ready to die out of anger for sin that other people committed. This is the only way that God can be both loving and just, is if God himself takes the wrath that we deserve. And so in Christ, we have, we have a way that that God can still be just. God can still hold people to account for their sin if he himself, if his anger is self-directed. This is how Jesus saves. This is our Savior. I've heard someone describe that the gospel is this, that the wisdom of God has, a, has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God Without compromising the justice of God. I'll say that one more time. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. This is uniquely true in Jesus. This is what we have in Christ. This is how Jesus saves us from our sin. This is why we sing in Christ alone. This is why we sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. In Christ, the wrath that we deserve is placed on God himself. Simultaneously, as Jesus is saying, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Simultaneously, as we see the self-directed anger of God, we also see Jesus saying that he's the new temple. Saying that he's bringing about a new place of worship. He's saying the old temple, he's he's referring to destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And John tells us that he's talking about the temple of his own body. And so necessarily we're going to draw a contrast between the temple that Jesus is standing in and the temple that Jesus is referring to that he uses the same word for. Does that make sense? So the question is, how is Jesus the new temple? He's saying, destroy this temple, I'm going to build a new one. But how does Jesus in his body fulfill the purpose of the temple? Remember what I said? That This is the center of worship right? And Jesus reestablishes what worship is supposed to look like in himself. He's the place where God and men intersect. He's the place where sacrifice is offered. You can almost hear it in his voice, right? Just kill me. It's almost as if he's like about to pull out nails from his cloak and say, just nail me to the cross. Meet me at Golgotha. I'll carry the wood for the sacrifice. I'm going to make it right. No more goats, Just kill me. He offers a sacrifice. He mediates between God and man. You see that Jesus is also the high priest. He's the perfect lamb of the sacrifice. He's the place where God dwells. He's the holy of holies. He's the full completion of all that the temple represented. So Jesus is the perfect temple. At the same time, Jesus is is drawing a contrast between the old temple and the new temple. And this new temple that Jesus is establishing in his body is going to be radically different from the temple that he's abolishing or fulfilling. The two points that I made about the original temple was that uh, it was was bloody and that there were barriers. And we can look and see, particularly in the barriers context, that Jesus' temple is radically different. In Christ, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. Everyone has access. There's no longer male or female. Everyone has access. And Christ is our high priest, which means you don't have to be from some genetic line of Levites descended, or you don't have to have devoted yourself to learning all the religious rules. And the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, which means that Jesus has abolished every barrier. That you and I, actually, all people have access in Christ to the, the deepest part of the throne room, to the Holy of Holies. There are no barriers. You don't have to walk to Jerusalem. You don't have to make a pilgrimage once a year with your family. You don't have to wear the right clothes or speak the right language. Jesus has destroyed all barriers. So in one sense, the temple that Jesus is initiating is radically different from the old temple. In another sense, it's very similar. It's no less bloody. Because the fact of the matter is that someone had to die for sin. There had to be payment or God wouldn't be just. And so the invitation in Christ is that you don't have to die. That Christ already has died for you. This is our Savior. That's the new temple. That's why Jesus is the temple. He's the intersection between God and humanity. He's the place where people are reconciled to God by God not because they offer the correct sacrifice and not because of the blood of goats. He's the center of our worship. See, in our context, people think that a Christian is one who follows Christ's example and teaching, but the truth is that Jesus was not primarily a teacher. He was a rescuer. A Christian is one who's been rescued by Christ. That's why Jesus isn't making critiques about their worship. He's not saying, no, don't do it that way, do it this way. He actually just blows up the system and makes a new one. He's not introducing a new religion. He saves us from religion. He's, just as much as he saves us from our sin, that's our savior. So that's the scene, the sin, the savior. And the last point I want to make is the sign. Look what Jesus says, right? So the Jews come up to him. He's just caused a huge scene in the temple, just sort of convicted them of all these ways that they're worshiping incorrectly. And they're like, what gives you the right? What sign do you show to prove that you have authority to dictate how worship should happen in the temple? Notice Jesus' response. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Not only is Jesus saying, I have authority over the temple because I am the temple. He's also saying, if you want to see a sign, watch this. I'm going to die and come back. This is a theme in Jesus' ministry. People were always asking Jesus for signs and favors and miracles to authenticate his ministry, but he consistently says, a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except this, the sign of Jonah. Those of you who know the story of Jonah know that Jonah was in death for three days and then came back. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you want to see me be authenticated, If you want to see my divine claims validated, I'm going to die and come back. This is why Jesus is one reason why Jesus died and rose was to authenticate his divine his divine claims. We also know that when Jesus was on the cross dying, the sky went black, the earth shook. It says that graves were opened, people came to life, and the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. This is a cosmic level event. And then Jesus resurrected. No other prophet or teacher can say that. So the truth is that we can't talk about resurrection without talking about lordship. And Jesus is Lord of all because his resurrection proves that his name is above any other name. So if you're not a Christian this morning, there's like one real point that I want to make, and in then an invitation. I think you need to understand this about Christianity, that Christianity is not about trying to do the right thing or to, be, to making, make yourself righteous before God so that He'll love you. Christianity is about the way that God has made you right with him based on His own work, that Jesus has bridged the gap between you and God. Jesus has done all the reconciliation that actually you could never have earned enough righteousness to be with God, but God has given you righteousness. So Christianity is a celebration of the fact that in Christ, God has done all the work of reconciling us to himself. So the invitation to the non-Christian in the room today is that you would place yourself in Christ, that you would come to Jesus. And I want to emphasize the fact that we just, we just highlighted this, there are no barriers. There's nothing stopping you from coming to Christ? Is it that you're waiting for another sign? Because Jesus has said that no other sign will be given. No other sign is guaranteed. God doesn't owe you any other proof. He died and rose for you. So I want to I encourage you, like the disciples in this passage, to remember that Jesus said this and to Believe because the truth is that you don't have to travel anywhere, you don't have to know any certain language, you don't have to know the religious rules. If you would admit your brokenness and repent and place your faith in Jesus, you'll be saved. You don't have to die. So come to Jesus. There's nothing required of you. And if you are a Christian, the same is true for you. There are no barriers between you and God. And you can come to him again this morning wholeheartedly, knowing that he has done the work of reconciliation. Moreover, God doesn't play favorites. And he's not impressed by our religion. And so no no amount of service that you could have offered to God or ways that you could have sinned can keep you from God. By that I mean that whether you're a Christian or not, or if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, there's no, there's no variation between the amount that God loves his people. And so no matter how far away you've been, Christ has destroyed the barrier between you and him. So you're not a worse Christian because you're not in ministry or because you're not doing this and that. God's not impressed with that. God loves us because he loves us because he loves us. It's a part of his character. And so if you are a Christian, you might need to repent of the ways that you've tried to build your own spiritual resume. You might need to repent of your religious games or your your perceived earning of righteousness. That's actually why we do communion, is to remember that Christ is central in all that we do, that we have no righteousness apart from his saving work. It, It deflates our self-inflation, right? It minimizes the self such that Christ can be exalted. It deflates our vain attempts. It undercuts our religious games so that Christ can be exalted. So the invitation to the, to the Christian in the room today is to remember your rescuer again and to celebrate with us the work that Christ has done. So we're about to do communion and um, I want to say that if, if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to stay in your seat as we do this and to pray to God Um, and actually I want to encourage you not just to pray to God, but to pray to God for salvation. The Bible's very clear that there is no salvation outside of Christ. The Bible's also very clear that Jesus doesn't turn away sinners when they come to him humbly. And so I I want to tell you that the Bible says if you would come to Christ this morning, he will receive you. God will receive you with open arms and that there are no barriers between you and God because of the work of Christ. And so I I want to ask you to think about in what ways you might be believing lies and constructing barriers between you and God that are fictional. I don't know what that is for you, but I'm telling you that Jesus has destroyed every barrier, that you have full access into the throne room, into the Holy of Holies. And if you are a Christian, come up and celebrate us. Come, come up and celebrate Jesus with us. Don't celebrate us. Uh, so we're going to do communion. And I want, yeah, the invitation is that it would be a reminder to remember your rescuer um, and to celebrate the fact that Jesus has given you full access to God forever. Let me pray for us and then we'll move into communion. God, you're so good. And your, your love and justice both are so high. And your thoughts and your ways are so high that we can't understand them. But God, I thank you for the picture of them that you've given us in Christ who shows us that your, that your love and justice um, are reconciled on the cross and that you've made a way for us to be with you. Lord, we thank you for your, your new temple, Jesus Christ, and we pray that, um, that as we do communion and as we sing, that you would continue to meet with us um, and remind us of the work that Jesus did. Remind us of your goodness and grace. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.